In the closing years of the 19th century, two men entered a ring to determine the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Though boxing was illegal, the man who refereed this fight was none other than the legendary lawman Wyatt Earp. Square up and touch gloves for this episode of Footnoting History. Hey Footnoters, it's Josh, here to fulfill a promise made during the Public Arch episode a few months back. If you don't remember, while we were exploring the not-so-friendly rivalry between Alice Abbott and Etta Clark, we discovered that Wyatt Earp had refereed a high-stakes boxing match and was suspected of having fixed the fight. I couldn't get this moment out of my head, so I decided not to keep the episode in my back pocket and get it to you as quickly as I could. Plus, listeners from the future, it's summer when I'm writing and recording this. It's been over 100 degrees for like the past 20 days, and I just don't have the brain to go diving off into some weird religious stuff right now. But don't you worry, friends, the weird will be back, and in greater numbers. The fight that we'll be exploring today was a heavyweight bout between two titans, Bob Fitzsimmons and Tom Sharkey. We'll get into who these guys were and the circumstances that led to this fight in a bit, but I think it's important that we set some structure for how we're going to proceed here. The story I'm telling you today is the intersection of several things. The so-called American West, boxing in the United States, Earp's biography, and the fight itself. And I also think it's important to talk a little bit about the history of American sports in general to give all of this context. In fact, I think we should start there. To tell the story of American sports, one really has to go back to the original colonization of North America by the English in the 17th century. And I know we all know the story of the Puritans and the motley crew of men who originally settled in Virginia. But as you'd imagine, those two very different colonies had very different ideas of sports and games. Up in Puritan New England, believe it or not, they played games and participated in athletic competitions. Now, these are the same people who once canceled Christmas, so I can understand if you're skeptical. For Puritans, any game needed to have some kind of utility. It had to have a purpose. Otherwise, it would be purely for pleasure, and that just wasn't acceptable for these pious New Englanders. So they'd hold barn building competitions and quilting bees. I know we have a lot of listeners who knit, so maybe that might be exciting for y'all, but I'm sorry it wouldn't be for me. Down in Virginia, by contrast, sports went hand-in-hand with gambling. When you read accounts of these early colonials playing games, they're usually things like bear baiting, horse racing, and gander pulling. I don't want to traumatize anybody. But these sports were often quite violent and ended up with the death of the animals involved. Believe it or not, the New England outlook on sports was the one that really prevailed in the United States, at least at the mainstream level. Now, of course, that's not to say that the Virginia model went away, quite the opposite, but it did go more underground. And is that really a surprise to anybody? Tell Americans what not to do And that's exactly what they're going to do, for better or for worse. Apologies in advance for the simplification and generalization here, but if we're looking at this moral-centered view of sports and how it really entered the mainstream, we need to look at the 1830s and the effect 
of the Second Great Awakening. That's right, I just John Wicked some religion into this episode. You thought you were safe, but then wham! Religious history for your face! Wait, I'm sorry, I got carried away for a second. One of the cultural consequences of the Second Great Awakening was the massive amount of reform movements that flooded the United States. Whether it was school reform, prison reform, the anti-alcohol crusade, or the abolition movement, Americans sought to find solutions to the problems that plagued them, especially in American cities. Ralph Waldo Emerson once quipped that the reform impulse was so strong that a society for the protection of mosquitoes was sure to form without delay, and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if it had. Though I would imagine that that group would be painfully small. Americans targeted cities because they were seen to be places of rampant vice and no concern for the so-called simple life. Kind of an interesting parallel to the way that some Americans talk about cities today. But beyond the drugs, alcohol, and sex a city might have to offer, there was something more insidious that threatened America. The destruction of traditional masculinity. A lot of this threat was tied to the changing nature of work and industry in the United States thanks to the first industrial revolution that began more or less at the beginning of the 19th century. Prior to the proliferation of factory and industrial machinery, however crude it might seem to us, quote-unquote manly work was more or less physical labor. Men worked on farms, they raised livestock, they crafted shoes, they were carpenters, masons, and plumbers. The changing nature of industry completely altered how men worked, at least in the northern U.S. They now moved to the cities to find jobs in factories or in offices. Gone were many of the opportunities to work outdoors and engage in manly labor. If a man wanted to do manly things, he'd have to look for it outside of work. And sports helped fill that gap. If you read early descriptions of the game of baseball from the mid-19th century, many writers comment on just how wholesome the game is due to the athleticism it requires to play and the values that it celebrates. I know a lot of manly dudes don't really consider baseball to be a manly sport in the U.S. these days, but that's a pretty recent development. In the middle of the 19th century, the new urban athleticism collided with religion as well. A new phenomenon, muscular Christianity, was born. Believe it or not, I don't want to go too deep into the theology of it all here, so let me keep it fairly simple and straightforward. Essentially, muscular Christianity centered on the belief that the body must be kept in good physical shape in order to be pleasing to God. Muscular Christianity took hold in England first, but it soon came to the United States, and its most lasting legacy, at least in my estimation, is the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. Maybe you've wondered why a place that's essentially an athletic center had such a name? Well, it's because of muscular Christianity. The YMCA really started to take hold in the mid to late 19th century, and we've had them ever since. There's even a hit song. But as I'm sure y'all know, that song isn't really about, you can look it up. So what does any of this have to do with boxing? Well, if baseball and maintaining a physically healthy body were moral athleticism, 
boxing was the exact opposite. If we think back a few minutes to our comparison of Puritan versus Virginian sports, that's pretty much the dynamic that's working here. Boxing is violent. It causes the destruction of the body, blow by blow. And what always goes along with boxing? Gambling does. Many boxing fans love to put money behind their chosen champions. And the moral reformers of the 19th century, like many people still today, thought that gambling was at the height of immorality. And so in many places, prize fighting was illegal. But that didn't mean that boxing matches stopped altogether. Quite the opposite. Boxing was one of the most popular sporting events in the United States well into the late 20th century. And now UFC has obviously supplanted boxing as the fight sport du jour in contemporary times, somewhat due to the perception that boxing matches are fixed. The most popular fights in the early to mid-19th century were those that featured a native-born fighter versus an immigrant fighter, particularly if the immigrant pugilist hailed from Ireland. These bouts were to determine which group was superior. It's a very man thing to do. If you know your 19th century American immigration history, this really shouldn't surprise you, as the Irish held a social status that was beneath other white folks, but not nearly as low as the enslaved. If you've got some extra time on your hands, reading about the so-called great fight between James Yankee Sullivan and Tom Young America Hire in 1849 is worth your time. I'll make sure I drop a link in the further reading section. Certainly one thing to mention here, these early boxing matches were bare-knuckle brawls, and they went long. 16, 20, 40, even 75 rounds. Now, these rounds weren't a standardized three minutes in length like they are today. A round lasted until somebody got knocked down. Then the person who got knocked down had 30 seconds to get back on their feet and square up. In doing research for the episode, I found that the longest bare-knuckle match went for over six hours. I just can't fathom that. People complain about baseball games going longer than three hours these days. Another thing to note is that these boxing matches always happened clandestinely because they were illegal. The fight between Sullivan and Hire, for example, happened in a remote location in Kent County, Maryland at the beginning of February. I can't imagine how cold it must have been. As time went on and the United States expanded its borders westward, boxing went along for the ride. Many of the biggest fights of the early 20th century, man, even the late 20th century, happened in western cities where the law was a little bit more, let's say, lax. It's really no surprise that the epicenter of boxing eventually became Las Vegas, though that didn't really happen until the mid-20th century. In any event, Boxing moves westward would mean its intersection with Wyatt Earp, whom we're finally going to talk about after minutes of context. Look, friends, we don't have the time to get into all of the details of Wyatt Earp's life, because what a life it was. We know him primarily from his time in Tombstone, Arizona, where he built up his legendary status as a lawman. But prior to Tombstone, Earp lived in Illinois, Missouri, and Kansas. His family had even spent time in California 
Back in Peoria, Illinois, Earp had even owned a brothel and was brought up on pimping charges. <clears throat> After the legendary showdown in Tombstone, Earp continued his quite transitory life. He moved around between New Mexico, Colorado, California, Idaho, and even spent a brief period in Alaska. It was during his first stay in San Diego, California, that Earp learned the ropes of how to referee boxing matches when he wasn't running his four saloons and gambling parlors. Earp eventually moved from San Diego to San Francisco so that his third wife, Josephine, could be closer to her family. Earp, in addition to racing horses, went to work for the, I guess, notorious Hearst family. Yes, that Hearst family of William Randolph Hearst. And, you know, since Earp was there and had a reputation from Tombstone, Hearst's San Francisco Examiner published a three-article biography of Earp. And let's just say, like most things Hearst, the sensationalism was at least at power level 9,000. Shout out to you Dragon Ball Z fans. U.S. boxing itself was also in a bit of a transitory space. The sport had recently adopted the Marquis of Queensbury rules, which mandated things like fighters having to use gloves, the standardized three-minute round, no wrestling or grappling, and that a fighter only had 10 seconds to get up if he was knocked down. These rules were designed to make fighting seem more respectable and attract a more, let's say, discerning clientele. Equally as ground-shaking, the consensus heavyweight champion of the world, gentleman Jim Corbett, had recently retired, leaving the title unclaimed. The man who emerged as the favorite for this title was Robert Fitzsimmons, a British boxer who had just recently knocked out another top contender, Peter Mayer, in the first round. The man standing in Simmons' way was Tom Sharkey, a man who had fought Jim Corbett, the previous champ, to a draw before Corbett retired. Let's be clear here, though. The fight ended in a draw because the police showed up and broke up the fight, so a winner could not really be declared. So Fitzsimmons and Sharkey were to square off to determine the new champion. The promoters of the fight, J.J. Groom and John Gibbs, had a significant hurdle to jump over, though. The fighters' respective camps could not agree on a referee for the fight. In fact, Fitzsimmons' side was rejecting every candidate because they were convinced that the fix was in. The day of the fight had arrived, and the promoters still did not have a referee. There are a few accounts of how Gibbs and Groom selected Earp for their fight. Gibbs claimed that he had spotted Earp in the Baldwin Hotel in San Francisco. The San Francisco Examiner, however, claimed that its managing editor suggested Earp to the promoters. Both Gibbs and his partner Groom stuck by their story. Yet one historian, Christopher Shelton, claims that Sharky's side suggested Earp. I couldn't track down any sources that could really confirm one account over the other, but Shelton cites that Sharky's trainer testified that it was Sharky's side who suggested Earp. Earp reportedly also tried saying no, citing his lack of experience, especially given the high stakes of the fight, and he had reason not to referee. 
Earp had never refereed a match under the new Queensbury rules. But according to another account, Earp told the promoters that they could come find him if there really was nobody else. In a later edition of the Oakland Tribune, the newspaper touted Earp as the referee, claiming that his bravery and reputation as a sportsman made him the perfect candidate. The Fitzsimmons camp, though, resisted until the end, but yielded when there really was no other choice. The time of the fight arrived and Earp showed up to do his duty. When he was announced and entered San Francisco's Mechanics Pavilion, the venue for the fight, the crowd cheered, thinking that he was there as an observer. But when they learned that Earp would referee, the crowd tempered its cheers. When Earp entered the ring, he took off his overcoat, revealing the Colt 45 that he had tucked into his pants. He said he was carrying the gun because he didn't know whether he would run into somebody that he had put in jail, and he was carrying a large check, the prize money for the fight. A police captain, though, one Charles Whitman, jumped into the ring and demanded that Earp hand over his weapon. The crowd yelled at the police to search Earp for another gun, but after Earp said that he had no other firearms on him, the police took him at his word. Fitzsimmons' manager, though, had more to say. He approached Earp and then yelled to nearby reporters that Earp had been bought and paid for by Sharky to fix the fight. Once the fight began, Fitzsimmons dominated. But then in the eighth round, something happened. One of Fitzsimmons' regular moves was an uppercut to the solar plexus, you know, right in the gut. And after landing a couple of blows to the face, Fitzsimmons aimed for that uppercut. He hit Sharky, Sharky dropped with the wind knocked out of him, and Fitzsimmons and his corner celebrated. Sharky's corner, however, cried foul, claiming that Fitzsimmons had struck a low blow to the groin. Sharky's manager, Danny Lynch, came over to talk with Wyatt Earp. They chatted for about two and a half minutes. It was then that Wyatt Earp dropped the bomb. Even with Sharky on the ground, still writhing in pain, Earp grabbed Sharky's arm and raised it high in the air, declaring him the victor. Fitzsimmons had been disqualified for hitting Sharky below the belt, and Earp also handed over the check for the prize money. As the decision rippled through the crowd, the spectators quickly turned against Wyatt Earp and showered him with derision. Most in the crowd had not seen the disqualifying blow and only saw a collapsed Sharky have his arm raised in victory. A team of doctors, however, had confirmed that Sharky had indeed been hit below the belt. How a doctor verifies this, at least in the ring, is unclear to me. Did they pull down Sharky's shorts and say, well, chief, those balloons are a bit too full of helium, if you know what I mean? Would swelling have even set in so quickly? I know every time I've taken a shot to that region, the pain radiates into my abdomen and always makes me feel nauseated. Was Sharky yelling about his testicles specifically? Maybe I'm spending way too much time thinking about this. As for Earp, he very quickly left Mechanics Pavilion. He was in for quite the rough patch. Fitzsimmons did not take the decision lying down. 
There was nothing that he could do in the ring at this point, but he could take the decision to court. And he did. His side filed for an injunction against the decision to keep Sharky from cashing the prize check and won a temporary hold on the money. When both parties arrived in court, Earp was required to attend and testify as well. For his part, Earp claimed that he had not been bribed and had only done what he thought was right. Fitzsimmons testified. Sharky testified. Everybody testified. The ruling? The judge threw out the case because boxing was illegal in San Francisco, so the whole affair was moot. Think of it like this. If you an accomplice robs somebody, and then your accomplice robs you of your share, it's not like you can go to the cops and report theft. Wyatt Earp, though, did not exactly have a great time in these San Francisco courts. A few days after the fight, he had to answer for the concealed weapons charge stemming from carrying his pistol into the pavilion. The court fined him 50 bucks. He also ran into trouble based on some debts that he owed from leasing horses. The famous lawman was not long for San Francisco. The press was unkind to him as well. While the San Francisco Examiner, Hearst's paper, didn't have too much to say, its rival paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, absolutely railed Herb. Newspapers in San Diego and Los Angeles picked up the story. The Associated Press also circulated it, casting Earp as a criminal gambler who'd thrown the fight. For readers in places as far away as Minnesota, this was all they knew of Wyatt Earp. No wonder the guy took off for Alaska. So did he do it? Did Earp fix the fight? The evidence doesn't look great. A Sacramento Daily Record Union article from December 10, 1896, a little over a week after the fight, reports that Sharky's trainer, Billy Smith, testified that Sharky's side had actually created the organization that put on the fight between Sharky and Fitzsimmons and had hired Earp to referee with the intention to fix the result. Earp was to be paid $2,500 for his services. Smith also claimed that the head doctor, a Dr. B. Brooks Lee, visited Sharky at his hotel two and a half hours after the fight and the two were the only people in the room. When Smith returned, he found a bottle of potassium iodide. He said he didn't know what it was for, but he said that he later saw very apparent swelling in Sharky's groin. Dr. Lee, eight years after the affair, was arrested and charged with murder in Portland, Oregon, for something completely unrelated. But while detained, he was reportedly asked about the Fitzsimmons Sharky fight, and he claimed to have been paid $1,000 for making Sharky look like he had indeed been hit below the belt. Again, Earp always maintained that he did not fix the contest, but he could never shake the reputation. Even after his death, some newspapers said that crooked referees had pulled an Earp or had Earped the job. Earp eventually landed on his feet, though. Things didn't go very well in Alaska, so he returned to California. He did a lot of off-the-books jobs for the L.A. Police Department and consulted for a handful of silent cowboy movies, though he was never credited for the latter. So that's the story of Wyatt Earp's brief career as a boxing referee. I'm not entirely sure what to do with this. I mean, I always ask that question at the end of the episode, right? What do we do with this? 
I guess if you're a boxing fan or a critic, maybe this is good evidence that the sport has always been a bit crooked. Maybe there's a moral lesson to be learned here about the value of sports in the United States. Maybe it tells us something about who we are. Maybe it's just cool and unexpected. That is kind of what we do here at Footnoting History, after all. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm definitely glad that I got to tell you the story. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to Wyatt Earp, Boxing Referee. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe when you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We're the cool kids, so we're even on threads now at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.